The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Almighty God, you're gathered here in your presence and awed by the fact, as we just sang, you came near. You, God the Son, sent from God the Father, came near. You, God immortal, invisible, the only God, became flesh, mortal and visible. This is a wonder, an amazing thing you have done. And we sit here, we stand here in your presence, thankful, awed by it. In some ways, not understanding it. Maybe in some ways, understanding it too well and taking it for granted. Would you, God, draw near to us again here in this moment and explain something new, something fresh about this incarnation? This becoming flesh, coming into flesh. Explain it to us anew in a different way. Perhaps, Lord, for the first time, open the eyes, the hearts of some here. Maybe you need to renew some of us and, and refresh us, and maybe you need to encourage some of us or convict some of us or, or, or just put us back together from a confused state. There are many things we, we need. We come from different places this morning, and we come into your presence, you the great God, as people small and frail, with fleeting life, in need of you. So please, Father, would you draw near? Would you send your Spirit now upon us here in this room and the kids in other rooms, those who will listen to this elsewhere at other times, would you send your Spirit upon us now and meet us and grow us and bless us to open to us deep truth and bring to us then deep encouragement and, and an awareness of far more than we often are, are fixed on. We are so drawn to the immediate and, and the temporal. Would you cause us to see something larger and grander and be captured by it? For that again, Spirit of God, I, I ask you to work here because I can't do that. We can't do that. We need you to open our eyes and give us understanding and give us sight. So please take the passage before us this morning and the words that I'm going to say and make them real. Press them into us and produce growth and change, conviction and hope. Bring us joy here this morning. 
Maybe even for someone bring life eternal for the first time. Do that here now, we pray. Speak in your word, God, and make us new. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We trust you. Amen. Given the realities of the pending holidays and related travel, we're going to take a brief break this morning, next couple weeks here, from our study in the Gospel of Luke. And instead, this morning, we're going to give our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy's a young pastor in the city of Ephesus, left there by Paul to build up the church in that great city. It's in the modern country of Turkey. It was a significant city at that time, and Paul left Timothy there, and part of his work in building up the church there included, Paul was going to help him by clarifying in this letter what true doctrine is, what God's divine law is about, and he's going to explain more about his gospel, that is, the message about what God has done, and not a message about what we're supposed to do, but a message about what God has done to save people from their sin and from his wrath. So Paul's going to take up those topics via personal account and testimony. He's going to, in the first chapter, tell about how God appointed him a minister, and in our passage then, how and why God saved him. So, verses 15 to 17 read as follows. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We have here a saying that Paul describes as trustworthy, true, certain, and it is true because the Bible says so. Of all the books on earth, only the Bible is the very word of God to us, and the God who cannot lie spoke to and controlled the writers of all the 66 books of this great book. He spoke to them and controlled them such that what they wrote down is the very word of God. It is the truth. And if that strikes you as a little bit odd, or if you're uncertain about how you feel about that, all I have to say to you is just read it. God the Spirit can answer that question for you. God the Spirit can speak through his word and confirm to you this is his truth. That's all I have to say, but I can say more. Because, in fact, Paul means more here in this passage. He's about to write something for us that is trustworthy and true and deserves full acceptance by all because, in his kindness, God has given us evidence, more evidence than we need, really. He's given us evidence to confirm it, to verify this claim. Paul's about to bring up the saving work of Christ, a work rooted in activities and in actions and events. 
not just in theories and ideas, though there are certainly theories and ideas in this Christian faith. There is much more than that. What I mean is that the Bible, different than all the other world religions and all the other world's religious books, the Bible does not just say, kind of like I did, it doesn't just say, here's a theory, here's an idea, and you should believe it because I said so. And because it makes a little bit of sense and has a little bit of appeal to it. Therefore, is more than that. The Bible says, here's a theory. Here's an idea. Here's a truth claim. And you should believe it. It is trustworthy and deserves your full acceptance because of, here's argument, because of certain events, certain activities, certain actions that were performed by and witnessed by countless multitudes of people across time many of whom, most of whom, were not otherwise inclined to believe it at all. Take, for example, the angelic host that announced the birth of Jesus that first Christmas night. That's not a theory. An event witnessed by a host of otherwise plain old ordinary shepherds. People saw it. The miracles, all of the the caring, miraculous acts and healings of Jesus, those are not theories. Those were actual events time and time and time and time again, witnessed by, experienced by multitudes, massive crowds. We read about this in in the Gospel of Luke. We see again and again and again whole hordes of people seeing and experiencing, feeling even in their own bodies, events, actions. The crucifixion of Jesus, a public event carried out on a hill by the government of that day, witnessed by multitudes. Importantly, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Public event witnessed by hundreds of people, most of whom didn't believe such a thing was possible, none of whom expected it until they saw it could go on, but these are events, actions, activities that establish the trustworthiness, the the truth, the certainty of what Paul's about to write about, about this Jesus, reason that it is deserving of full acceptance by all. What he's going to write is not just really good, wonderful, it is that, But more importantly, it is the truth. And it deserves full acceptance by all. So here's what he says. I'm going to break this into three pieces. Here's the first piece of what Paul writes. Summarized like this. The Son of God has come with saving purpose. That's the first piece. The Son of God has come with saving purpose. Paul writes, Christ Jesus came into the world. This is Jesus he's talking about, the baby born in Bethlehem. Newborn that Mary and Joseph named Jesus, but he is far more than sweet, precious little baby Jesus. He is Christ Jesus. Described that way with that, with that honorary title that tells us something about him positionally. Christ is not his name. 
Christ is his title. Jesus is his name. Christ. It's from the Greek, which is from the Hebrew word Messiah, which means chosen one, anointed one, special set aside one. Jesus is Messiah Jesus, or anointed one Jesus, or chosen one Jesus, which should set our minds, if, if we were thinking, set our minds back into the Old Testament, looking back at this Messiah all throughout the Old Testament Scriptures over many, many, many years. God spoke of, God foretold a special one, an anointed one, a chosen one, a Messiah that he would send. And over time, he kind of unfolds who this one would be, and he is depicted time and again as an anointed ruler, a king, that it would deliver his people from trouble, and he would be good, and he would be righteous, and he would be powerful, and he would be great. And in passage after passage, over time, every problem that the people of God face in one way or another, ultimately the final answer to it is Messiah. Here's a problem, and often a temporary solution, but the ultimate one is anointed one. Here's another problem in a temporary solution, but the ultimate one is anointed one. Again and again, everybody's looking forward to, God is pointing them forward. There's a time I'm going to send Messiah, Christ. When he comes, he will deliver and will fix. And here is Christ Jesus come into the world. Born as a baby, obviously we know the story. We also know the story, born as a baby, supernaturally conceived as God the Holy Spirit, depicted as hovering, if you will, over Mary and creating in her pregnancy, supernaturally making her conceive this baby, which tells us something, he's not an ordinary baby. This is a baby boy named Jesus, born in a natural way, but he's also Baby Jesus and God the Son. So when it says here he came into the world, it doesn't mean that he came like other babies come. We talk about babies that we you know, expect them to get a due date and then they arrive, they come. This is one who came to this world from somewhere else. He is God the Son who came to here from the throne room of the eternal God. The Bible talks about God as there only being one God ever. Not many gods in different places, not many gods in different lands, not many gods in different ages. One God only, ever, without any beginning. And that one God exists in three persons. We say persons because we, don't, we, want, we want to be clear that we don't mean like powers, like the force, like gravity. Three persons, three beings with personality. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. One God. And God the Son came into the world and marvelously, mysteriously joined himself to a human body born to Mary in Bethlehem named Jesus. He came into the world with a purpose. With a purpose. Why? It is easy for us to misunderstand this. 
it is easy for us to misunderstand. He came into the world to save. And we immediately think of the things that we want to be brought out of, taken out of. And, and particularly if you listen to some of the Christmas songs this time of year, you hear a lot about peace on earth and, and human unity and, and joy and gladness and cooperation. And it's, it's very easy for us to think about he must have come into the world to save us from conflict and trouble and trial and, and illness and, and to make a good, peaceful world. And in part that's true, but it's easy to misunderstand that such that we get it really totally wrong. It's, that's, that's like looking at, at symptoms rather than root cause. There is certainly much trial and trouble, and he is certainly about bringing peace, but we very easily misunderstand if we don't understand the statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. This is what is trustworthy and true and deserving of full acceptance. He came to save with regards to sinners and sin, which I know right away, as soon as I say that, it feels a little bit like Christmas, trees, candles, snow falling outside, nice. And then you talk about sin and sinners. Every movie you've ever seen, every book you've ever read, had tension in it, had problem and deliverance, had conundrum and clarity. Why is that? Because that's what draws us, that's what interests us. Nobody ever wrote a movie, nobody ever acted out a movie that was just flat, no plot tension. We wouldn't watch it. Why is that? Because there's something in us. The movie comes from the human experience. The book comes from the human experience. There's something in us that resonates with very deeply, even, not even realizing that it resonates with, that wants to read, that wants to watch, problem and solution. That's because God wrote into us this reality, problem and solution. And you can't only talk about solution or it doesn't, it doesn't grab us. It doesn't grip us. It's not real. There is great problem in the face of which then the great solution of Christmas makes sense and grabs us and is real and is moving. And that problem is sin and sinners. We have to talk about that. Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners to save, not to condemn, to save, but to save sinners, not righteous people, not good people, not worthy people, not deserving people, to save sinners. Sin is the horror of the human experience. War is not the horror of human experience. Sin that causes war is the horror. 
violence and tension and fear and argument out there in Syria and right here in your home comes, that's not the big problem, that comes from the big problem, it comes from what's going on in here, sin in this sinner, in you. All of life and every single one of us is, is influenced by, is crippled under this great plague of sin. The first and the greatest commandment that God gave in His Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God with everything you are. And not a one of us does it. And every conflict and every tension and the lack of peace on earth and glad tidings between men and women is because of this reality. You need go no further than the newspaper to realize this is the problem. Love the Lord your God with all you are, with total allegiance, and we don't do it. Sin is the problem in each of us and in all of us, and it is literally a damnable problem for us sinners. Because the God who is holy and just will not look upon and will not tolerate, will not allow sin. He is holy and pure and has pronounced against it, thank God for his good pronouncement against it. His pronouncement is to cleanse it all away from his pure and good creation, to wipe it all away from himself, us with it. It is a problem that we sit under the penalty of this sin, and it also is a problem that we sit under the influence of it and that we cannot get away from it. How many times do you even yourself sit there and say, ah, about yourself, not about other people, about about your own self? How many times this last week, I hope some, it was for me, do you sit and you look at your own self in, in, in embarrassment that you said that again, in shame that you looked at that again, that you did that again, that you, that you extracted this pound of flesh from that person in exchange for the ounce they took from you to teach them not to do that to you? We can't, not only is there wrath from God against sin, but there's, but there's problem in us and problem in all of our relationships because of me and you. Sin out there, sin in you, and sin right in me is my problem, and it is your problem. It is the the evil of all of this creation. But, this is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ, Messiah, Christ Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners. Not to condemn them. To save. He came with very focused, very deliberate purpose. He does not come to address symptoms. You don't want a doctor that loads you down with ibuprofen when your head is pounding from a tumor. Give me 50,000 milligrams of whatever that is that can make it go away. Don't deal with the problem. Just deal with the symptom. You don't want that. You want someone who comes to deal with the actual issue and to deliver from it. He's come to save sinners. 
And to show his ability, to show his willingness to do so, he saved Paul and holds him up in front of us as exhibit A. I'll save sinners like, look at this. So it brings us to the second point. We have this great tension, this great problem that, that sits as a, as a massive weight on all of us, on all of our existence. And the second point is, Jesus Christ, in the face of that, is incredibly, incredibly patient and merciful. He is incredibly patient and merciful. Christ Jesus, Messiah, came into the world to save sinners, Paul writes, of whom I am the foremost. This is the Apostle Paul, of whom I am the foremost, he says. I'm the chief, I'm the greatest sinner. Paul does not mean that literally. Because who can know every person's every sin and who but God can rank them all? He's not saying, I've evaluated the whole of human history and I'm number one. He means, I am an astounding, great sinner in my own eyes. It's not literal, but it's not just exaggeration, not just hyperbole to make a point. He also knows that compared to many people, compared to most perhaps, his sin was large and grievous, due in great part to his persecution of the church. It's the Apostle Paul, who before he became the Apostle Paul, was known by his birth name, Saul, and he was a great persecutor. He himself was personally responsible for much emotional and much physical pain and imprisonment and even some death amongst the early Christians whose only crime was they believed in Jesus. He was bent on stamping out the worship of Jesus and afflicting people, and that's what he did. He knew his sin, and it was big, and it was hateful, and it was violent. So he doesn't just mean, I, I was your average guy going to the office and, and you know, kind of not being nice sometimes. He means, chief of sinner, of course, I don't, I don't know that I'm number one, but I do know that I was a great sinner, a violent persecutor of Christians, of innocent people, and strongly, vehemently against this Christ. He knew his sin and knew it was awful and large. But it's not entirely unique to Paul. This attitude is not entirely only fitting to him. In fact, any one of us, any one of us, if you catch something of the idea of the holiness of God and something of the idea of love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your might and love your neighbor as yourself, you catch something of what that means and something of the unbending nature of the God who judges that and then something of yourself. Never mind the dirtbag neighbor or the, the spouse who ripped you off when you got divorced. Forget them, you. 
You catch something of this God and that law and something of yourself. And what strikes such a person who sees those two things is weak and meek and humble and lowly in spirit, I am a sinner. A woman who sees herself like this will regard herself as a great sinner, even as chief among the sinners, and will be alarmed and grieved by her own sin. And a man who sees this about himself will not think, but my neighbor is, but will think, but me, I am. This is Paul, and this is us. This is Paul, importantly, because I know some of us are thinking, You're talking to the non-Christians here. I'm talking to the Christians here. Paul's a Christian. Paul's an apostle. Paul's writing a book of the Bible when he says this about himself. So that twice, chief of the sinners. Paul knows this about himself, sees this about himself. But he also knows, verse 16, but I received mercy. In the plot here, we're dealing with, this is the great big weight that sits upon it. This is the problem. This is the conundrum. This is the, the deadly ill. And we're beginning to move and beginning to see, oh, here's the turn. And you can almost hear his heart through his pen, but I received mercy. They didn't earn mercy. You don't earn mercy. That's a contradiction. Mercy is the withholding of something that you should get. You don't ever get in a situation where you should get what you shouldn't get. He received mercy while being the foremost sinner. This is Jesus for Paul. And this is Jesus for Paul for you. Follow his thinking there. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience. This is Paul, chief among the sinners. Paul who doesn't look anymore at other people, but Paul who looks at himself and sees all that he was and realizes every moment, every every second of, of that life, as I chase down those folks in this city, as I throw them in jail, as I scream at them, as I, as I berate them, as I beat them, as I kill that one, in every single moment, Jesus patiently waits. In every single moment, he deserves. And Jesus does not give it. Jesus does not give it. Does not give it. Does not, mercy. Does not give it. Does not give it. Patient and patient and patient and patient and patient. Oh, how patient he was with me. And in every moment of that patience, he is not just storing up, oh, this is going to be a great one when I pound him. I'm not storing up more and more and more wrath, but he's bringing mercy to him. 
in patient moment, in patient day, in patient week, and month after month, and year after year, Paul realizes God was pouring out on me in this Jesus great patient mercy and waiting and withholding and waiting and withholding to save Paul one day on the road to Damascus, indeed, but also to save Paul to show you he can save you. This is the patient mercy of God for you. Not only for Paul, because what we're seeing here is this is who Jesus is. He might display his perfect patience. Jesus is perfectly patient and marvelously merciful. What we're seeing here in Paul's life is who Jesus is. And he's still that today. He's still that for you and you and you and you and you and for us. Patient and merciful and patient and merciful. And then again, patient and merciful. Paul wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Paul was against him trying to stamp out the worship of Jesus. And even when we don't want anything to do with Jesus, we read about, we hear about something of the, of the law of God and see something about ourselves and the distance between them, and we typically react, well, forget that. Throw it away. Write it off as an old archaic book or an angry preacher. Forget that. Or we try to lower the bar and make it something we can do. Probably what it really means is be kind of nice. I can do that. But Jesus offers us a better way and shows us what that way looks like in Paul. No, no, the bar remains high. And no, no, you are a sinner. But what connects them is I am marvelously patient and merciful. For those who are coming in the next month and in the next century to believe, He did this in Paul's life a long time ago to write an example, to hold up an example in front of you. Look at me, the merciful and patient one. That's who I am even today for you, for those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He is merciful and patient and perfectly patient. Just right patient. Completely patient. He's not getting irritated slowly. He's patient. But the rest of that sentence alerts us to something. We must believe in him for eternal life. He is not eternally patient. There is a divide coming in the road. He patiently waits and patiently, mercifully holds out hands of hope to you while alerting us even in the very sentence. There is a divide. You must believe in Jesus to receive eternal life. You must trust in Christ's mercy offered at the cross. That's what the cross is about. That's what the birth of Bethlehem is about. He comes into the world, as we sung here this morning, I think. He comes into the world to save sinners by going to the cross and being crucified for them. For you who believe to eternal life. You must believe 
to eternal life. It doesn't just come to you. You must believe. You must hear who you are as a sinner and realize, I can't lower the bar and I can't meet the bar that is, but there is a merciful offer here. Christ crucified for me, a sinner. You find then in that place, you find that he gives the kingdom to those who are poor in spirit, who are humble and say, I'm a sinner, help me. Believe and find his help. Become a Christian by trusting Christ, by believing in him for eternal life. If you're having it this morning, now's the day. I recognize that many of us have. Do you see the Jesus who's right here in this passage? And do you see that this is not only about what happened in the past? This is about, there are two ways this should strike you. It should, first of all, strike you. It's the tension in the story that, that makes it attractive and so winsome to us. I was in deep trouble, and God sent his son into the world to save me, and he patiently waited on me. All the while, you can rehearse your past and recognize all the ways that you were rejecting Christ, and he was waiting and waiting and waiting, chasing you down like the hound of heaven. One pastor once said, I forget who said this. I heard this from some other pastor. His goodness and his mercy are like the hounds of heaven that chase you down till he treed you. And then he caught you. That was you. Him for you in the past and him for you today. Because Christian, Christian, He has come to save sinners, not only from the wrath of sin that is coming, but come to save you, sinner, from sin even now. And if you at all understand yourself, you see that, man, sin is killing me. He is patiently, mercifully still at work in you, even in this moment when you as, you, as you run through your past week or your past day or your past month, and in sadness and in perhaps in some shame, say, oh man. Who here once the last week displayed on the screen for us all to look at? Display it on the screen of your mind, your past week on the screen of your mind right now. Do you think Jesus just discovered it? He saw it all when it happened, before it happened. And patiently, mercifully, he bears with you. Patiently, mercifully, he says, that one too on my cross. That one too, this too, all of that on my cross. And patiently, mercifully, he continues to uphold his promise. I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. I'm with you. I will continue the work I began in you. I'm not done. I don't give up on you. You are indeed a sinner. Let's be honest about that. And I am indeed merciful and gracious. Let's be honest about that. 
Much of our problem, Christian, comes from the fact that we can't hold two things together very well. We can't be, but we must be, really clear and really strong about sin and really clear and really strong about patient mercy and grace and love. These two things are both true, and we have to hold them together, but they are so hard, we often throw away one or the other. We turn God into, into permission, we throw away any definition, any concept of sin, and we become licentious, or we turn God into hard taskmaster and either seek to perform or are crushed under the burden of our, of our lack of performance. These two things must be held together. Christian, hold them together. Sin is sin. It is the problem. It is ugly. God is holy and he hates it. And God in Christ is patient and merciful and gracious and loves you and is committed to saving you from sin. He is at work in you to do great good from the penalty of sin. <laughs> Praise God. From the one-day presence of sin, praise God. From the power of sin right now, he is patiently, patiently. He's not irritated, ticked, hacked off, angry. Patiently merciful with you. Because that's who Jesus is. Patiently merciful with you right now, Christian. Sinner. Christian. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you from the penalty and presence and even from the power of sin. To save you from that and to save you into a life. Thirdly, we are saved by this Jesus to a life of holy worship because if you get that, verse 17 runs out of you like it did out of Paul. To the king of ages. And one thing that's hard to understand in, in English is different words. He just said at the very end of 16, eternal life, and it's the same word there, king of eternities, you might say. Same word. I believe that I'm saved to this eternal life. And he's the king of that eternity even right now. And so now I express to him what praise and honor. I've been saved into a life with him, this ruler. To the king of ages. Who is the immortal and invisible one. Paul's getting at here is not like everybody else's gods. All the gods of the nations are mortal and visible. They're created by human hands and fashioned from stone and gold and, and bejeweled. And they their, their, their human owners carry them out to battle and they fight against one another. And when one god loses, his, his people lose. The other god takes him and knocks him down and breaks him into pieces and melts him in a fire. And he's destroyed. Mortal and visible. And Paul says, that's nah, not God. There's only one God, the immortal and the invisible. 
the only one who is, and to this one, this saving, delivering King of mercy, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So be it. Be honor and glory forever and ever. We are saved from sin and wrath and saved into the kingdom, into the rule of such a good king. And what comes out of Paul as he realizes that is honor to you. Glory to you. A declaration of wonder to you. And notice that there is not a hint of ritual in this. If you've been around the church much, read hymns, been a part of liturgies, you realize this is repeated often in in various formal writings. Paul didn't write this because this is the proper way to end a formal service. It's the other way around. We, in our liturgies and our hymns, copied Paul. This came out. As Paul rehearses, as Paul walks through, sinner, saved in patient mercy by the one true God, honor and glory to you from me forever. The gospel grips him such that what comes out of him is not okay, that's nice. If that's your response, you didn't get it. Open up your eyes. May God open your eyes that you would hear it and get it. Sinner. Saved. By patient mercy. From the one God who is. Who was and who is and who is to come. Who reigns over everything and will judge the living and the dead. And deliver you forever and ever 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 into peace and rest in the presence of this good, kind, merciful one. Oh, out of your life must erupt praise and glory and honor. Have me, have all that I am, have my words and have my action. May God open your eyes that you would see this glory and see this Jesus born in Bethlehem to die at Calvary to save you a sinner and to deliver you from all evil. Amen. Let's pray. God is good. Let us pray. Lord, this is the life that you have given us. When by your will you sent your Son to the earth. And Jesus, when you by your will humbled yourself and became a man and went to the cross for us. Blessed be your holy name. And we say thank you and pray that you would cause us to be thankful, not just to say thank you, but to be thankful. 
Not just to say glory to you, but to glorify you. Not just to say honor to you, but to honor you with our words and with our lives. Build your church. Have your way with us. Draw people to yourself. Continue to save even today, we ask and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.